I invite you at this time to open your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 7. We'll we'll take up, um, I'll be reading, that is, uh, starting in verse 15. This is essentially a part of the Lord Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to be referring to a number of passages of Scripture in this sermon as we have been doing this series in the past sermon series. Um, and so, but we will use um, this passage multiple times, so that's why I'm going to start with it <clears throat> this morning. And um, isn't it good to hope in the Lord's power to work through his word to bring his blessing to us? Let us confirm that hope now with prayer. Lord, as we open your word and as we ready our hearts to hear its preaching, each one of us, we ask, Lord, that we would have the hope that you will speak to us. We are leaning here upon the prescription of your word that you have sent, Lord, through your church, through the ages, and even in scripturated, Father, that we would read your word publicly, that we would proclaim it, that we would reveal the way of salvation, that we would bless your name, that we would call people to walk in your ways with the authority of the scriptures. And we ask, Lord, that as we commit ourselves to that kind of ministry here, that you'd be pleased to use it to accomplish every holy end that you have in view for us as a body and as individual believers. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 15. These are the words of Jesus. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out many demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. God's word. Oh, beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, today we continue in our follow-up series um, on the doctrines of grace, embracing Calvinism. 
I in the session know that some of you are all uh, yes and amen um, about the doctrines of grace. And we're certainly grateful for that. Some are more hesitant and uncertain. But it is my desire, and more importantly, I'm convinced that it is the Lord's desire, that we all be able to rejoice. What is this about at the bottom? That we be able to rejoice in his total sovereignty in our salvation and in the utterly gracious way that he saves us through Jesus Christ. And that's what the doctrines of grace are really all about at the end of the day. That's why it matters to us. Not just that we see it revealed in scripture. It it should matter to us on that basis alone. But it's also about God's grace and sovereignty and salvation. Which ultimately means it's about his glory and salvation. And so this morning, uh, it is good for us to address another major objection to Calvinism, to the doctrines of grace, that often prevents people from embracing these doctrines of grace. And it has to do with the phenomenon of apostasy. This objection primarily has to do with the promise of perseverance that we considered the last um, sermon in our, our earlier s- series. We here believe that God's word teaches that God's elect, those he has chosen for everlasting life, will never fully nor finally fall away from the estate of grace, but that they will persevere in that saving grace unto the end and shall certainly receive everlasting life. We believe that's true for all of the elect. But then we observe in scripture and in our own contemporary situation the reality of apostasy, which appears to contradict the promise of perseverance. Some people, and here's here's apostasy, some people who once professed to believe in Jesus, professing Christians, later come to reject Jesus, leave the church, and no longer identify as Christians. And their lives bear the marks of that. This happens. Scripture testifies to it, and it warns about it. I know this tragic narrative has come very close to some of you. What did we pray for this morning for Covenant Church? Children who once prayed the prayers and memorized the catechism growing up at the church, yet when they left the home, they rejected it all. They walked away. Perhaps they never professed their faith and became communicant members of the church. Perhaps they did, but then they abandoned their public profession of faith. It's not merely an academic concern, is it? For when this happens, when someone that we consider to be a friend or a fellow believer abandons Christ and his church, or when a beloved relative walks away from the faith, or even when a church leader who helped us grow in the faith claims to have deconverted or deconstructed their faith, and now they reconceive of it in a different way, and it's no longer really the faith. We have all sorts of questions. We're shaken a bit by these things. Did the person ever believe? Will they someday return? Are they just backslidden for a season? That happens for some. Can they be restored to repentance? Might I do that same thing someday and walk away from Christ? Can somebody lose their salvation? Could I? 
We deal with these things, don't we? It's a very real, personal dynamic. And there are some passages of Scripture that may seem to indicate that people can have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, truly be united to him by saving faith, be justified, adopted, you know, and then come to the point where they don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ anymore. And that's what we want to deal with today, as much as we can in 30 minutes. Can saving faith dwindle unto death? Can you lose your justification? Does the Father ever cast off some that he formerly adopted? Do all the elect really persevere into the end, or will some of the people that Christ died for and whom the Spirit has caused to be born again later fall away from the faith? So, saints, there's no denying that the scriptures speak of people falling away and apostatizing. I know it sounds like a weird word, but that's actually the right way to say it, apostatizing. I had to figure that out. The question we have to ask is ultimately whether or not the people who do fall away and who never return, by the way, were ever truly saved and united to Christ by faith to begin with. To get at it from another angle... What we want to know is how the scriptures teach us to view the identity and ultimate condition of those who do fall away. And to think through what it is that they are falling away from. Now, what I would like to do this morning is to work through a handful of biblical passages that can provide us with a framework for interpreting what the scripture reveals about apostasy. We could go through all the verses that seem to contradict the perseverance of the saints and uh, explain the context and why, in my view and our view here, it doesn't mean what some people think it means. That would be a bit pedantic and maybe better for a Sunday school class. So this morning what I want to do is I want to teach some fundamental uh, biblical principles that if we hold on to will give us the interpretive framework to understand these other passages. And I believe it's, it's really the best way to go about this. So we want to go through a, a variety of thoughts this morning that mo- many of them come from the passage we read. First of all, the role of fruit. Okay, the role of fruit in identifying someone's identity, ultimately. Secondly, the two types of faith. Two types of faith. Thirdly, faith versus the faith. How do we understand faith versus the faith? And then fourthly, uh, fellowship with Christ, which is ultimately what's at heart here. The role of fruit, the two types of faith, faith versus the faith, and fellowship with Christ. So as we we consider in this passage, Matthew chapter 7, what Jesus teaches us here is that a person's true identity is known not merely by their outward profession, but by the character of their life. This is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 7 when he said, beware of false prophets. That's one example of a character in this class. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Here we have a person who is not a sheep at all. But they look like one, at least for a time. They're a prophet. Not only a member of the church, but one who has a position of teaching. 
Their credentials may seem pretty good. For a while, perhaps they're saying all the right things. And yet their real inward nature and identity is not sheepness. It's wolfness. They're only wearing sheep's clothing while they are intentionally seeking to deceive others. Now, we could say a similar thing about, say that the wolf is a picture of someone who's insidious, okay? There's a similar dynamic with the goat. Someone who has an outward appearance from a distance, looks like a sheep. When you get closer, you realize, wait, that's a goat, not a sheep. And that's probably a better picture for somebody who isn't necessarily intentionally seeking to deceive, but is just self-deceived. Um, but in any case, we'll focus on what Jesus says here, <clears throat> though it applies also more broadly. The, the simple statement is this. Some people in the church, and I'm not speaking of this congregation only. I'm speaking of the church globally here. Okay? But some people in the church of Christ are not what they appear to be. And eventually that comes out. Jesus' intent in saying this to those who heard him is that those who are his sheep would be able to unmask wolves in sheep's clothing, identify them, out them, reject their teaching and false leadership, and help others do the same. Now, there's different authority levels. You know, the people that have been given responsibility to church have a primary responsibility here, but that's why he's saying this, right? Beware. Watch out for these ones. Recognize this is a category that exists, and don't be fooled. Everyone who just says they're a Christian, and then they want to lead you to start praying to this other divine being. You're like, wait a second, are you a Christian? Are you, like, what is this about? Or they want to start instituting these other things. They want to teach you that this practice of your life that you've been taught from the Bible is sinful. They want to say, no, God doesn't really care about that. It's okay, you know. It's just the body. It's your soul that matters. You can do whatever you want with the body. It doesn't matter. And they bring in destructive heresies that lead you into sin. Whoa, what's the nature of what's happening here? Maybe you're trying to devour me, right? Is that wolf I smell? <clears throat> so the end game of Jesus' teaching here is that wolves in sheep's clothing would be revealed for what they are eventually. Notice this is very different from saying that people's identities change over time. Jesus isn't saying that a sheep could become a wolf. That one who was a true believer could then turn into a wolf. That's not what he's teaching. Or, or a goat. Jesus doesn't say um, that sheep becomes wolves or, or that some sheep who knew him as their shepherd would become carnivorous and act like wolves. No, when someone is discovered to be a wolf in the church, a false prophet or teacher, for instance... The category Jesus gives here isn't to say that such a person lost their salvation, but that they were never saved to begin with. They didn't become a wolf. They always were a wolf. So if they are seen to fall away, if that's the appearance of the narrative, well, it looked like they were a faithful Christian, now they're not, or be exposed if they're exposed later on, the story isn't that of the elect failing to persevere, but of a non-elect person pretending to be elect for a while and then later being found out to be a hypocrite. You follow? <clears throat> Jesus continues the same logic with another set of images, this time agricultural. He continues saying, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And the answer must be, no, Jesus. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes and figs are not gathered from thistles. 
Notice here that it, that it is what a plant is by its essential nature that determines what kind of fruit it will produce. And Jesus says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Again, it is, if the tree is healthy, if that's what it is, that will be evident in what it produces, good fruit. But if a tree is bad, not only will it not produce good fruit, it can't. Now let me pause and say that in this illustration, uh, Jesus is not merely saying sin in your life is bad fruit in this illustration. Because what he says is that those who are diseased trees who bear bad fruit are burned. And we know that that can't possibly refer to Christians who sin because that's all of us. The bad fruit here is a reference to those who never repent over their sin, who infirm and embrace it, who, who, who do not actually uh, benefit from the life-giving water of the gospel to deal with their sin. See, repentance is a good fruit that must, re- in the context, is sin. So we don't walk away from a passage like this saying, well, I bear bad fruit because I sin. We all do that, amen? Well, That's not precisely what Jesus is speaking about here. He's speaking about the bad fruit of rejection of the gospel and not applying the gospel to the sin in your life for the glory of Jesus and your own restoration and growth and grace. This is is the idea here. It can't possibly be something else. Otherwise, we'd say, well, only those who are literally perfect morally and don't don't ever sin would be a healthy tree. Okay? So that's not, so we, we have to get that out of the way as we look at this. That's not what Jesus could possibly mean. But the bad, the bad fruit is parallel to this idea of hypocrisy, parallel to this idea of being something that you're actually not, pretending to be, being a false prophet, a false teacher, or a wolf in sheep's clothing, etc. So if over the course of time, someone's life is characterized by bad fruit, they're embracing unbiblical ideas, and sinful practices, and they're rejecting the teaching of scripture, and they're not repenting over this. We don't say that they were a healthy tree that became a bad tree. Jesus teaches us to say they were a bad, diseased tree from the start. At no point here does Jesus suggest that someone can transition from being a grapevine to becoming a thorn bush, or from a fig tree to a thistle. He's not Darwinian in his thinking. There's no evolution here. When the character of the life is manifest, it reveals what kind of person someone is, healthy or diseased, good or bad. Now, it's possible that somebody could, you know, someone could be acting as a wolf in sheep's clothing, and they are a wolf, and that's revealed, and then subsequently, the Lord uses that to cause them to be born again, and they humble, they're humbled over their sin, and they, they're regenerate, right? That's possible, but here, what he's speaking of um, is the identity of the person as they are. Are they actually united to Christ or are they not? Okay. So the production of bad fruit, the things that, that, that accompany and even define apostasy is what matters. The point is that the production of this bad fruit reveals the fact that the person bearing bad fruit is a diseased tree and not a healthy tree. Those who reject the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. 
right? They, 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 they don't embrace what we've been teaching. They want to say that healthy trees can eventually become, bear the bad fruit of apostasy or that sheep can become wolves. But Jesus is teaching something contrary to that here when it comes to the dynamic of people's works being manifest. It, he's revealing, he shows us here that it tells us about who they were, not that they've changed. This also helps us understand the parable of the sower, I believe. This is another passage in scripture that people get concerned about. And we, we took, I think, something like six sermons out of this last year. But remember in that parable that we have two examples of apostasy. There's four soils, right? We have one soil that represents the person who hears the gospel but never has a positive response to it. They don't understand it. They never profess to believe it in any sense. It's the hard soil. Seed just bounces off and the birds take it away. Um, And then there's the good soil that receives the seed and then the, the plant grows and it produces fruit of various degrees. That's the believer, the one who will endure to the end and will actually inherit the kingdom, the elect. But then there's, in the middle, two soils, the rocky soil and the thorny soil, and they have this one thing in common. Although these soils receive the word in some capacity, yet the plant that grows up never produces fruit. That's the distinguishing factor. They don't produce fruit. They have stalk and leaf just fine. But for different reasons, both of them never produce fruit. And that's what counts. That's what distinguishes the good soil from all the others, the production of fruit. In Matthew 7, the evident distinction between a healthy tree and a diseased tree is in the fruit. It's not the trunk or the leaf. You could have two trees side by side, both with great big trunks uh, and plenty of branches and leaves on them. What counts, however, is what kind of fruit they're producing. That's what tells you whether or not the tree is healthy or diseased, according to Jesus. Here, so the picture of a, a, a sprout coming up and then never producing fruit and falling away is not a picture of someone who had a genuine faith in Christ, were truly united to Christ, born again, and then later fell away from Christ. That's a picture of somebody who had something going on that mimicked the life that God gives, but it never manifested its true nature in fruit, and so we must say it never was truly God's life at work there. So, I think this is really important to recognize that Jesus identifies the fruit of the life as the distinguishing factor to separate out, so to speak, wolves from sheep, healthy trees from bad trees, not all the stuff that precedes it. What is the trunk? What is the leaf? Well, it's all the stuff that supports the production of fruit, right? They come to worship. They've joined the church. They're there regularly. These are the kind of things where they, 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 they're, maybe they're even at the Lord's table. But what's intended to be produced from all of that, a life of faith and repentance and obedience to Jesus Christ, right? Imperfect, but true. Uh, submission to him, love for him and for his body. That's not coming forth, and it's manifest in some way, shape, or other. Uh, perhaps trials and tribulations come. Persecution comes. And it's proved that they really don't prefer Jesus over suffering. If Jesus also comes with suffering, they're done with Jesus. Well, that's a heart that never really knew Jesus to begin with. And his worth. Right? You have the others where it's a thorny soil. And they have some kind of profession of faith. But along the way, the lurements of the world come in. And they prefer those things over Christ demonstrating that they really had no love for Christ to begin with. 
So that's the first thing we must keep in mind. And I think if that's in view, that helps us understand some of the passages that can become concerns. That we see apostasy happening, but it's not an indication that the person ever was saved. The second thing I think we must understand is that there are two types of faith. Now, this is not the kind of thing that we often talk about necessarily, but it's present in the testimony of God's word. Some who are said to have faith clearly do not have saving faith. This is kind of the idea of the second two soils in the parable of the sower. There's some reception of the word, but it doesn't ever, you know, it's almost dead on arrival. It doesn't produce the fruit that it's intended. Perhaps we can say it this way with James. Some people believe as much as the demons do, but that's not going to save them. Okay, we'll look at that passage in a second. Well, Scripture provides us with at least two types of faith, perhaps only two types of faith. But, um, and this authorizes us to say that some who believed in one sense or to one degree did not believe savingly. For them to fall away, therefore, is not a refutation of the doctrine of perseverance, for that doctrine pertains only to those with true saving faith, not demon-like knowledge of and assent to the truths of the gospel. Um, we, we, John and James, and I'm going to read two passages from John's gospel and James' letter that help us understand that belief exists in these two levels. Now, when we think of saving faith, we usually describe it as having three components, and I think this is a very faithful explanation. There is knowledge, you know, you need to know the gospel narrative. What is it in the scriptures? What is it that God came to do for sinners to redeem them from their sin? There's, there's just knowledge. And anyone in the world, right, um, who's capable of understanding language, etc., can, can grasp that knowledge. But that alone doesn't save anyone. There's a lot of people that know the gospel in and out, and they've rejected it. The second step is that you agree with it. You affirm that it's true. You say, yeah, that's not only... Um, I don't not only understand the gospel, but I assent to it. I say yes and amen. I believe this is real. It's not just some myth. The third step, which distinguishes one kind of faith from another, is the personal trust and dependence upon the Savior revealed in the gospel. Right? This is producing love for Jesus. Trust in Jesus. That's a, that's a different animal than somebody who merely acknowledges the truth value of the gospel, but doesn't actually personally know Jesus or trust him. There's a lot of people in this world that say they're Christians, brothers and sisters. And you tell them the gospel, yeah, I agree with that. But there's absolutely no evidence in their life whatsoever that Christ has done anything to change their hearts. Right? There are two kinds of faith. Now let's go to a couple passages that help make this evident. John chapter 8, starting at verse 30. John 8, starting at verse 30. This is Jesus in the Gospels. And and the Gospel writer says, As he was saying these things, he's preaching, teaching a number of things, many believed in him. That's the same word believe that we use for faith and belief everywhere in Scripture. One word, pistiuo. Okay? Pistiuo. The noun is pistis. Faith. Okay? That's Greek. So Jesus said, next verse, so Jesus said, to the Jews who had believed in him, that's the audience, and the author wants us to know he's talking to people who had some kind of faith in him. He says to them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? 
Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, brothers and sisters, I read the whole passage to see that the really strong statements Jesus says about these people are directly connected back to, who is he talking to? People who believed in him. John's gospel makes it ecstatic. Jesus said, to the Jews who believed in him. Well, what kind of faith is it that we're talking about here? They looked at him and they were able to profess something true about him. He's the Messiah. Now, did they love him for that? Remember there's that parable of the vineyard? The the vineyard owner keeps sending servants, they beat and kill. And they say, let's have him send this. When he sends the son, they say, here's the heir. They know who he is. Let's kill him. Some, in a spiritual sense, knew who he was, yet hated him, wanted to kill him. There are some who are able to assent to and agree to the basic truths of the gospel, but they do not respond obediently, trustingly, lovingly to it. There is this kind of faith. James speaks in very similar terms in chapter 2, James 2, starting at verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Here James is talking about someone who has knowledge and assent but not personal trust because it's that personal trust that's manifest in obedience. Right? If you never obey Jesus, I can tell you, you do not trust him. It's just a fact. Faith is evident in obedience. In the midst of trial and persecution, will you stay with him? In the midst of worldly allurements, will you prefer him? Right? I'm not saying perfect obedience, but if there's no obedience in your heart, then there's no trust. Right? What does it say? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So James is talking. He's using the word faith. Right? But he's speaking about, right here, someone with knowledge and assent, but not trust. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, he says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? That's an example of a good work that would be done in faith and obedience to Christ. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Whoa, 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 even the demons believe. There's a kind of faith that is not a full saving faith. 
We must confess this. The scriptures in these two passages and other places reveal this. Why do we need to keep this in mind? Because the scriptures will sometimes refer to someone's uh, confession of faith or profession of faith, which is not actually saving faith. And if such a person were to fall away, they haven't had saving faith and then not had saving faith. They had some kind of knowledge of an agreement with the gospel that never actually came to trust uh, and, and love of the Savior. And so when they fall away, they didn't have the real thing to begin with. They had a, a copy. They had a, um, they had a counterfeit, right? Like the soil, the rocky soil and the thorny soil. And Jesus wants us to be aware of it. That's why he gives the parable. That's why these things are here, so that we're aware of that dynamic that exists. So this is, this is um, something we must keep in mind. Okay? Apostasy does not necessarily, and does not, refer to somebody with true saving faith abandoning Christ, but some other variety of lesser faith that they abandon. John's first epistle also gives us one of the most clear pictures of how we diagnose these things. Now, if you don't know this, John's first epistle is written, uh, you can tell by the context of what's happening in the letter, it's written right after a church split. But this isn't a church split like you may have heard of. This is a church split where some people leave Christ himself, ultimately. And John, as an apostle, knows that's what's happening. Okay? So this isn't just somebody who leaves a local church, this is somebody who's abandoning Christ, okay? And in that context, he says this. Children, this is 1 John 2, starting at verse 8. 1 John 2, verse 8. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, Antichrist is a reference to those who teach a false Christ. If you were in the Sunday school class... It would be Antichrist to teach that uh, Jesus is not eternally divine like Arius did. That's an Antichrist message. It's a, it's a proclamation of a gospel that is false because of a false presentation of who Jesus is. Now, we know we have all these ideas about you know, eschatology, end times, Antichrists. Whatever we think about that, the idea of Antichrist is there, a false gospel presentation. Okay? And that's what the people who left John's assembly were doing teaching a false gospel about Jesus. But what does he say about this dynamic? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are all, that they all are not of us. So John doesn't say, oh, these ones left us, they once had saving faith and now they didn't. He doesn't say, oh, they lost their salvation. He doesn't say, oh, the devil convinced them to reject their true profession in Christ, and now they've rejected it and they're no longer born again. That's not the way he explains this dynamic. The way he explains it is to say they never were of us to begin with. That's the logic of the biblical writers to explain the dynamic of apostasy. Very clear on the head here. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They had some kind of semblance of faith, but it wasn't saving faith. I think that's really important to keep in mind as we consider these various passages that seem to contradict the idea of perseverance. Now, a couple other things. I do need to be brief. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that there are some passages that speak of not faith, but the faith. Okay? So we looked at fruit, the two types of faith, and now we're going to look at faith versus the faith. Um, faith is your act of believing, 
right? That's a dynamic. It's, it's an action. It's you're trusting in God as something a person does. The faith, often in scripture, is a reference not to what you're doing, but the content that you're believing or professing. The faith is a reference to all the things that we believe. The Christian faith would not be all the Christians believing, but would be the doctrines that set Christianity apart from other religions. So when you read a passage like 1 Timothy 4.1, which says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Here, uh, we have... We have the Apostle Paul reminding Timothy that some people who profess to believe the true gospel will later reject that true gospel. The faith is the content of their preaching or teaching or confession. It will change. Again, so that dynamic happens, but that's not getting at the heart of the issue where they ever elect, where they ever born again. We're not even dealing with that layer of who these people are in this passage. He's speaking about those who had a profession of faith, abandoning it, okay, and beginning to teach something that ultimately comes from the devil, right? So that's important for a passage like that, to keep in mind what the faith means. He's not saying they had saving faith and then they didn't. Um, And there's a number of other passages that use the phrase the faith that way. I'm not going to read them. Acts 6, verse 7 Acts 6, 7 speaks of it that way. Ephesians 4, 13. Ephesians 4, 13. And uh, Jude. Jude's third. I will read this one. Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What was once for all delivered to the saints? The truth of the gospel. The thing that is professed, right? Etc. Um. That's what the faith refers to there. Okay, uh, forgive me. There's, there's so much more to say here, but I'm going to move on to the last item, and that is that some, the scriptures teach us that some will do great works and have an appearance of being connected to God because they're using his power, but they will actually not have any fellowship with Jesus Christ. Right? Um, They will do great works. They may enjoy many covenantal blessings, blessings in the visible church, blessings not enjoyed by those outside the church, and yet still not be numbered among the elect and be born again. And this is what Jesus teaches when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is back to Matthew 7. But those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, we imagine if somebody's exercising these gifts, they've got to be born again, right? How could God's power be exercised through a person and yet their heart never be regenerated? But these people, Jesus never knew them. This dynamic happens. If you're here in the Sunday evening study, we see this with Saul. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit to minister as king, but it was clear he had no saving relationship with Yahweh the Lord. And the Lord can do this. And so the scripture speaks sometimes of people who have a covenantal relationship with God and are even, even, even the ability to do things like heal people. God gives, but they themselves don't know the Lord. Now, we can ask the question, why would the Lord do that? Well, that's a good question, and that's a different sermon. But the fact is, it's evident in both Testaments that that, thing, that happens. 
So when the scriptures speak about somebody who by their actions or their former experience of the covenant seem to be like partaking in the real thing, falling away, we have to recognize that this dynamic also exists and that some people are actually the Lord in his, his mag, magnanimity or his, his, we might even say his humility or his condescension is actually um, willing to grant power to some who will never savingly know him to do things that look like kingdom activities. But they will be cast out in the end. This happened a lot with the Jews in the first century which is why Jesus has to speak it this way to his population. Brothers and sisters, there's so much to say here, and I hope that some of these fundamental teachings, if we keep them in view, will help us to properly read a lot of the passages that would make us think that a true uh, born-again believer could fall away and recognize, oh, the ones that we see falling away in Scripture actually didn't have the real thing to begin with. But let's end with this. We can always pray that God would give them the real thing right? Let's go back to those people you know who have walked away from the faith. If they're not dead, then we pray. And we hope that God would give them his saving grace and that they would return to the church and that they would manifest evidence of saving faith in the way that they live. Let us pray now. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for the promise that all those who truly do belong to you, those of us who have been assured by your very spirit and your word that we do belong to Christ, will never fall away. And may that assurance not lead us to licentiousness, but lead us to faithful devotion to Jesus Christ all of our days. And Lord, as we consider this dynamic of apostasy, would you give us, Lord, zeal and prayer to pray for those who who demonstrate, Lord, leaving Christ or leaving his church, or changing what it is that they formerly believe, we ask, Lord, that you would redeem these ones, that you would help us um, to be laboring in prayer for such ones, and to be offering them the good news, encouragements, etc. And Lord, may this, may this teaching help us all to embrace the doctrines of grace and recognize that although these dynamics exist, yet still for your people, you save by your grace with total sovereignty, And no one can change your mind. We praise you for that. Amen.